The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey everybody, and welcome to Shackles, Burlap, and Lies. I'm your host, Ethan Gilson, and this is episode 29. It only took three times for me to get that, people. You should mock me for it. Today, my guest is Paul Rubin, and how are you doing today, Paul? I'm doing well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. And a a quick shout out to our our friend Brian, who uh, was on a previous episode for connecting us. He uh, made the introduction, so I guess I owe him a beer or several. Yeah, ditto. Um, yeah. Um, so first question, like always, who are you? Uh, well, I am, I'm an aerial choreographer. Uh, I've been in the business for over 30 years. I started out as a flying director for Flying by Foy, and I was Peter Foy's protege for seven years, and then uh, ran my course there, and then became a partner in a company called ZFX Flying Illusions and was with them for about uh, almost 10 years and in 2004 i shared my i i uh, sold my shares back to my partners and became an independent contractor so now i am the owner of uh the fly guy productions and i've been running that since 2004 till till covid so we took a pause during covid and waiting for this thing to pass so we can get back to playing absolutely so one of the things that I find interesting, and I'll uh, in the show notes, I'll throw up the link to your website, that you, uh, not only in some of the, on the site, but in some of the videos, some of the content talk, and you yourself just introduce yourself as an aerial choreographer. How is that different from what a lot of people would think of as, well, you're a rigger who makes people fly? Because I I do think for a lot of people without significant experience in performer flying, they may not they might not understand the design process for creating that flying effect. Well, basically what I do is I look at the final picture first. I look at what do I want this to look like? What, what's the movie in my mind? What, what do I want to see? And then, uh, I, and I, and I, I also take a, uh, I discuss with the directors and the choreographers. So it's, it's, it's not just my design. It's, it's their input too, but it also depends on, on the, the situation. Sometimes the director says, this is what I want. And this is exactly how I want to see it. And I said, I can offer some suggestions and they say, now I appreciate that. However, we have to be very specific on how we do that, especially if it's like a TV shot or or something on in film. Where I notice in theater, directors are more open to to different um, different variances of how that sequence can run. Um, so knowing what I I want it to look like, I then work backwards into figuring out what equipment it's going to take to do. There, there are many different types of fly rigs, uh, and knowing uh, from my history with with two other working for two other companies, I know what is pretty much 
in the business. So I, I know that I can either have a simple pendulum if I want to do just a straight lift. If I want to add travel, I can add a, a track to it. If I need the person to do somersaults, I know it has to have two wires. If I need the person to, to rotate while they're doing somersaults, it needs to be on a spreader bar or a two-arm actuator. So, I mean, I know, I know the, the gamut. I mean, and there's and things are coming up every every day. There's new things in the market. There's um, like the the Halo 360 harnesses where you can actually rotate within a harness. Um, so I, I basically I don't want to be limited by the equipment I have. I want to I want to have all of my tools in my toolbox when I start this. So when I get to a point and say, okay, I want this person to do this. And the either the programmer or the rigger says, no, we can't do that because the equipment won't let me do that. I, I, I hate that. And I hate going to a director saying, sorry, I can't do this because the equipment won't do it. So I yeah. like to have all of my options there set and ready to go. Now, if I, if I know that I'm just going to have somebody pendulum across the stage, I won't request a track with two wires because that's that's way too much. And I, I, I don't want to also waste money. I, my job, what falls under my job description is to watch the budget to make sure that we don't over overextend and waste money in that area. So I try and keep it as cost effective for, for the client as I can, but give them the best product I can. So that brings up a question that um, comes up quite a bit on uh, different online communities. Um, I've mentioned before my active use of controlbooth.com, um, mm-hmm. where the question will come up typically from high school drama prof- teachers or or smaller community theaters of, hey, we're doing XYZ, we want to fly someone, but we have no money. How do I do it? And our stock responses hire a professional and usually the retort is well we can't afford it and what would they be providing and i think it's normal for people to focus on the hardware side of the visual and not something that you just touched on that i thought was interesting which is the experience side of knowing when too much hardware is being used. We don't need all of these features. We can do it more economically or we can do it simpler. We can do it more reliably with less hardware. If all we're doing is a pendulum, then being able to do that better or really well results in a better presentation than, hey, we have this track system and we can do everything, but we're just going to do this one thing. And you're kind of um, overwhelmed to say with options. Do you want, there's a question in here somewhere. Um, (laughs) what What the original question was going to be was, how do you approach smaller budget projects? Now, Today being December, mid-December is a lot different because the size of shows that even Broadway is going to do might change. The resources True. might change, but pre-pandemic, how how would you communicate to a smaller budget 
performance. Hey, here are the must haves. Here's what you must consider um, beyond just the hardware. Well, the first thing, I, again, going back to what I was saying before, is I, I need to know the minimum requirement that the director wants to see. Because normally uh, the director will tell me what his desire or her desire desires are, and then I can expand upon that. Um, what I try and do is um, keep the story told without uh, upstaging the story with the flying. So once I know what the flight is going to be, I, I try and, and I don't want to say dumb it down, but try and keep it as simple as possible equipment wise uh, within staying within the budget. So then let's, let's just say, for example, you're doing a, uh, uh, like a Peter Pan, let's just, just say Peter Pan, a, a, a window flight. So you know that the person has to fly through the window coming upstate from upstage to downstage. You don't need a track for that. Um, so I would suggest to the director, well, we could do it with just a simple pendulum. So all we need is a one person backstage, a rope, some cable and two pulleys. And that's what we're going to do. Um, but I just need to know from you that once this person flies through the window and, and the, the, the actor lands, they're going to get unhooked or do a flight that's just a pendulum arc back and forth in the nursery. Oh, no, no, no. After they fly in, I want them to go up and then fly back and forth. And then I want them to land here and then to land here. Okay, so now we're not talking about a pendulum anymore because you've just You've, you've just changed the parameters of what a pendulum can do and into what, what a track can do. So then I try to explain to them the, the difference between the two. And then they'll say, oh, oh, I definitely want the track. Okay. So now we're building upon that. So after they fly and they're flying back and forth in the room, do you see them staying upright or do you want them to have, uh, do you want them to lay flat like Superman? Do they need to do somersaults? Oh no, I don't need them to do that. I just want them to always face the audience. Okay, so then we can either do it with a uh, a single wire and ha know that the actor is going to control their their direction, or if we know that the person is not very coordinated, then we'll give them a two wire track and have them and force them to face the audience. So at that point, I, I'm working from the basics to adding a little bit more, knowing what the director sees. Right. Does that answer? Does that answer that question? Yeah, no, it it does. It brings up the the relationship between the director and you as the choreographer, and and that experience side of. Um, I, I've never worked with a director who wouldn't take more. You know, if if it was, oh, can I have a blue light? Here's a blue light. Well, can I have a red light? So now you got a red light. <laughs> well, how about amber? And then you know. You end up with, you know, 50 fixtures um, right. for one area. It, they'll certainly take more, but I think it, it, it brings up the topic of, uh, we used to joke on the corporate side, managing your client's expectations so that no one walks away disappointed that being able to do that accurately, here's what we can do within this budget range to create this effect that you've envisioned. And doing that 
accurately so that when you do it, they say, yes, this is what I wanted and not, oh, well, I really thought they were going to be able to, you know, do a handstand as they flew and, mm-hmm. and not being in a situation like, well, we didn't talk about that. You didn't say you wanted that. So I think that's an important thing is that communication of, of what is what is the desired result. Right. Well, for example, uh, I did a production of Peter Pan last year at the Shakespeare Theater Company in Washington, D.C., and it was an original production by Laura Gunderson, um, and she wrote this this beautiful piece. And when I had the meetings with with the company and, and Scott, the director, uh, we were talking about what we can do, what what can we do in this production that like, for for example, the productions of Kathy Rigby's Peter Pan that I've done, which is a basic single track and three pendulum system. I said, well, we can go with four tracks for the kid, four tracks for everybody. Uh, sorry, four tracks, a track for everyone. So Peter, Wendy, Michael, and John will all be on a track. So we can lift them independently. We can travel them independently. We can lift them up and have them hover and then travel them over back and forth. And uh, it was going to add to the flight to Neverland because we, we there's a lot of dialogue within that part of the story. So the director was like, "I love it. It's great. Let's let's go ahead with that." And then uh, I did a site survey to see where the stuff is going to get rigged, and I said, "You know, this theater is perfect for a house flight. We can rig a track, and we can have Peter stand on the apron here." fly over the audience and then land in the balcony. And he was, he, he loved the idea. He said, let's, uh, let's go with it. I want, I want it all. I want the whole package. And then when the package uh, got onto paper and we saw how many zeros were after the, <laughs> the ones and the twos, they said, well, we gotta, we gotta work back on that. We, we can't, we can't afford all that. So we wound up cutting the audience flight first because that's the 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 first thing that gets cut because it's the the flight it's it's basically the curtain call so right. we got rid of that and then we uh and again the 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 whole show was uh priced for automation so obviously the 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 cost was a lot at that point and then they said well what about if we made it manual i said well we can make it all manual just know that you're going to need eight operators on stage and think about the cost over the the run of your show it's going to equal what it's going to be for automation and automation it's going to be um uh the exact every time because your show is it they they didn't it, it wasn't um computerized in the sense that uh everything was tracked and it was simty but that's how they wanted it to go because it was music over, I mean, it was dialogue over music. Right. So, so I said, okay, so we can go either way. So we can go half manual, half, half automated. I mean, we can, we can play around with what we want. Long story short, cause I can, I can talk for the whole program about this one show, which was, which was great is we wound up having two track systems that were fully automated and two manual pendulums. No, that's not true. Um, I think the automation was for the lift, and it was manual travel for the tracks, and, and and manual pendulums. So that changed all of the choreography because now the kids, once they fly for Neverland, they're just going to go back and forth in the pendulum motion. So their dialogue is not going to 
the dialogues have to change, which was great because it was an original production. So Laura was able to change the dialogue to, to fit what we were doing. Right. Uh, the problem was is that the nursery breakaway d- didn't break away the standard way where the five pieces just flew into the, uh, I mean, not flew, but uh, went off into the wings. It, the whole nursery was pulled upstage. So there was a deck in the nursery and the actors were on the deck. So we had to pick them up a little bit as the nursery pulled upstage uh, so they wouldn't be, so they wouldn't travel with the set. And then we had to fly from there. So the, the, the weird part was, is that we had to start the flight before the actual breakaway because they had to be in the air before the nursery moved. So the tricky part was the pendulum. How do I get the pendulum people to, to fly into the, into the aerial ballet, but they can't get too far stage left or stage right to create that arc that we need. So we had to break it into two flights. So they flew from downstage to upstage and landed, and then they walked to the side. And then as they were walking, they were following Peter and Wendy in the air, and then they, they took off. So they were able to go back and forth. It was, it was complicated because, again, the automation for the tracks had to work with, with the manual pendulums. So you're wor- working with right. mechanical and, and you know, a, a manual system, and everybody knows it's very hard to keep consistent uh, a, a manual system when you're working with automation. And then you have the added complication of you're doing a, a live scene change. So how does your flying effects hardware uh work within the scenic elements and what's happening to them i mean lighting's easy hey there's an electric there um so yeah that that involvement that coordination between all the the different departments to say to get it to work properly and especially where you're doing a live scene change with the performers and flying uh certainly can see the coordination needed to do that um do you do a lot of uh, in in pre production a lot of drawings for the hardware? I would assume so, but I think there's a, a kind of perceived mentality of, oh, like the rest of the show's done, and we'll we'll put the the, the flying stuff in afterwards. Um, but I would assume to get the level coordination that you need, you can't do that. Correct. I mean, sadly, that's that's what happens. I want to say ninety percent of the time is flying is an afterthought. Um, they, they'll design the show. They'll know exactly what they want. They, and in their production meetings, they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have some flying and we'll, we'll put it in somewhere. But they never, unless it's a, a set designer or a lighting designer or even a stage manager, a production manager who has done flying before, it is an afterthought where they leave us three inches, you know, and they'll, they'll put the three inches right next to an, uh, an electric. Yeah. And, and then once we, we join the team, then a lot of work has to be done to get us to fit. You know, where can we shoehorn this into? Which is why I, I like to be brought on brought on board early into that discussion. So, if the flying is in the show and it stays in the show, it uh, it has its place, and we know that it's going to be safe. Um, many times uh, we have to cut a flight because there's just not enough room. There's no there's no place to put it, and the other stuff is so in integral to the show that the flying is the first thing that's going to get cut because unless it's a Peter Pan or, or a show where the character 
has to fly, it, it's going to get cut or bypassed. So the sooner you, you take into consideration where this rig is going to go, the better off and safer it's going to be. I had a, a situation a few years ago where a, a, a theater that self-produces their shows was doing Wizard of Oz. And they, uh, they had brought in a flying company to do uh, the witch flying stuff. But because their uh, line set schedule was so tight, they had their own balloon basket, which was designed specifically for the tight space. And there ended up being a standoff, I'll use that term, term <laughs> between the technical director and the producer and the house crew about some of the hardware choices. And it ended up being, and it's funny, in, in one of... Uh, one of the videos on your website, the uh, interview with you, you were talking about the size of the lift lines for the performer. And I think you said it was three thirty seconds. Um, this balloon basket, which weighed maybe 100 pounds with a 150 pound performer, was on four eighth inch wire ropes. And they were very concerned about the eighth inch wire ropes. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> so I ended up, you know, 24 hours notice going down to do an inspection of this basket process to determine whether or not I thought it was appropriate or not. And I was like, you got four eighth inch wire ropes here. I'm like, you're fine. You go all day with this. Um, so, yeah, space can be certainly a challenging thing. Um, so one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because as I mentioned before we started recording, what I think is very interesting is that you are a, a flight choreographer or uh, the, the term that a lot of people might use is a flying director. And although you have the uh, background of being a rigger and having done the the physical side of this, not to say none of it's physical, it's all physical. Um, mm. <laughs> when you're working on projects and you're now bringing in a vendor to supply material and a crew of people that you may or may not have control of every individual, what do you look for in a rigger that you're working with who may be relatively new to performer flying? What what is what are the character traits that people might want to pay attention to as they're working with you for the first time? Well, the first thing that I look at is is their safety, their 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 safety concerns, um, and. The, the way they put their reins on me, so to speak, because uh, I, I have specific uh, riggers and, and flying directors that I work with in the industry. And I, I work with them more often than others because they know how I work. I, I like to push the envelope as far as I can push it. And they're the ones that say, Paul, I, I think that's a little too far, or I, I think that's a little too fast, or I, I don't think that blank. So knowing that, I know that they're keeping the safety factor uh, up front. And I really like that because there are times where I can get so involved in, in the thought process of what, what I want the design to be. I don't think of, 
oh, that's going to be too fast until I see it. And then once I see it, I'm like, oh, that's way too fast. That person should be flying that fast or the dynamic to this flight. It, it's, it's, it's too high. So let's, let's, let's bring it back to where, where it doesn't exceed the, the cable strengths and, and so on and so forth. And I, the one thing that I like is to hear, I, nobody likes to hear the word no, but what I like to hear is maybe we can do this a different way that will still get your design. And yeah. as soon as I hear them say that, I'm like, okay, they're a team player and they're not just going to shut the door, but they're also being very safety conscientious. And to me, safety is, is the prime concern because once you have an accident, you know, who wants to work with you? You know, that my, I've been in the business, like I said, almost coming up to 35 years and knock on, on wood, uh, I have yet to be involved in, in a situation or, or an accident that, that, uh, uh I, let me rephrase that. I have yet to be involved in an accident. So that's one of the things that's been keeping me going this long is, is my safety record on top of my, my designs and, and the, the creation that I do for, for flying. Um, and the fact that I pushed the envelope. So that said, the first thing that I look at is, is their approach to safety. Then the next thing I look at is their willingness to, to be a team player. Um, and I will always take their opinions. You know, if they, they, it's, it's a group effort. Um, even though I'm the aerial choreographer or I'm the flying director, the rigor or the person that I'm working with always has say in, in what I'm doing. And, and sometimes they throw out a great idea and I'm like, I didn't even think of that. Um, and then they'll, they'll come up with an idea and I'm like, uh, that's good. Save it for the high school you're working with. Um, because they, they, they haven't been to this level yet. You know, they're, they're a, a, a lower level, um, starting out rigor. And if, if they're doing that, then I will work with them and say, um, this is a great approach. Listen to the entire story or, and see the entire picture before you finalize what you're going to do because you're going to limit yourself. And and it's a, like I said, it's a learning experience for, for for both of us because I'm I'm learning from them and they're learning from me. Um, so on top of being safety and and being a team player, I, I good communication skills. You know, you always have to be open. Um, and be able to communicate. Yeah. What, what do you think the biggest challenge you face as a, a flying choreographer is on a production? Let's, and, and, and that's a very broad question. So let me uh, try to focus a little more outside of unrealistic, unrealistic, uh, conceptual ideas by the director and uh -huh. budget. So budget's not an issue and the director is not going to sit there and say, I want to have someone levitate above the audience and no track, no nothing. And you can't see anything. They just got to magically appear there. Um, but w what do you think some of the, the biggest challenges you face are? Um, well, one of the challenges is, is is making the flights look as realistic as possible. Um, I, I like to, like I said earlier, I like to be able to partake in the story 
telling. Uh, the flying should never upstage the story. It should it should fit perfectly within it, and it should weave and 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 continue the story. Um, one of the biggest issues that I do have is when I come on board and the the pieces to the puzzle that I need to be part of are not there. For example, I, I did a production of, um, it was like a Cirque du, du Soleil show in, in Dubai. And when I got hired for the job, uh, they had said, okay, this is what we want from you. We're looking for a seven and a half minute aerial ballet and we want to fly as many people as possible. And they had, uh, I think it was 16 winches. So, okay, so you want to fly 16 people, but we would like to do uh, 2D and 3D flights within that. I said, okay, so every time you do a 2D flight, you're cutting one person out of that flight. Yeah, but we want as many people in the air as possible. Okay, what's the story we want to tell? Because this is this is a number within within a show. Well, we haven't gotten that far yet. Okay, well then, uh, can you send me the tracks of the music? Well, can you find music that inspires you? I said, okay, um, sure. But I mean, don't, don't you have like a basic track or, or some type of theme to the, to the music? They go, just find music that inspires you. I'm like, Jaws and John Williams inspires me. So, <laughs> so they're like, no, no, we, we, we need something more theatrical. I'm like, okay. So now is this story that I'm telling, is it romantic? Is it comedic? Is it what, what, what theatrics are we doing? just run with it. So that was the that was a big issue because here I am choreographing a seven and a half minute number to music that inspires me to a story that I'm making up by myself that needs to fit within the story that this other show is happening. Right. Um, so that that was a huge problem. And then uh, I wound up reconfiguring the winches. So I had uh, one 3D flight three 2D flights and five winches, five single points working at the same time. And within that, I was able to fly two people off of the winches. So I had 10 people in the air for that. And then I was able to have the other point, other points also lift. So there was five, six, seven, eight, nine. There was 18 people in the air at once. So I exceeded what they wanted in the first place. But again, those people, the, the, the double the amount, the nine that were in the air, only lifted up about four and a half to five feet because that was that was the, the limit that I can go um, because they were also on water, above water. So I can go just a little bit, a little bit higher because if they fell, they would hit the water first. Um, so I had 18 people in the air at one point. Um, which exceeded what they thought they were going to get. And then I sat down with the director to, to display this, this um, or to introduce him to it. And he said, okay, I'm, I'm ready to watch this number because he, he never saw it. So w the way this worked was every designer built their, their number and then presented it to the director. And then what he would do is take bits and pieces and say, okay, I want to put this here, put this there, do this, and I'll do that. And then he'll make the story. So right before I was about to present it, he said to me, I just want you to know that I am not a fan of two and 3D flying. And I'm like, oh, crap. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, You've got man. to be kidding me. So I, right there, I, I, I was like, okay, I was set up to fail. 
I, right. I, they, that's, I was told, put in as many two and three D flights as you can. And now the director's telling me this. So we presented the number and he watched it intently. And as soon as the number was over, he looked on stage and then he looked at me and he goes, can we see that again? And I said, sure, it's going to take a few minutes to set up again. So I talked to the stage manager and they set it up. And then he said, uh, he was doing whatever he was working on on the computer. And as soon as we were done, I turned to him and said, okay, we're, we're ready to go. So he watched it again. And I watched, I, I tried to watch what was going on on stage, but I was also watching him through my peripheral because now mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm sweating because I, I know I'm going to be told to pack my bags and I'm, and I'm out of here the next day because they, he's going to hate the number. Right. Um, so the number ended and he applauded everybody on stage and he turned to me and he said, thank you. You just proved to me that we need two and 3d flying in our show. And I just, I was able to exhale and my heart start came back into my body and I was like, okay, I'm able to work another day. Um, so it's it's things like that that become the problems and the issues that, that make my job difficult because I'm, and I'm guessing that the person who hired me either knew what the show needed but knew that the director didn't want it but never communicated the two to me so here I am coming in blind uh, <laughs> creating right. what I can create uh, and the show is still running and uh, they're getting rave reviews or, so. or, or it's the brilliance of, you know, a producer who says, I know that this director is resistant to this, but that's what I want to see. And we're just going to put them in the room with who we think is the best person to create this so that they have no choice, but to say, well, oh, that was good. I'm not saying you know, that's what the case was, but you never know. I mean, sometimes those relationships are, well, you know, if they keep saying no, 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 but I want to see this, I'm just going to kind of create an opportunity for that person to maybe change their mind. Well, no, there's, there's probably a lot of truth to that because I found out that the show that they did prior to this one, they had some 2D flights in there and they were so basic and rudimentary that the director hated them. So it could be that he had seen it before and he knew that it wasn't good and it, and it didn't fit within his show that that's the reason why he hated it. Right. And, and the thing was, is that because I'm coming from a theatrical background, I, okay. So I was talking to some of the other, uh, they call them coaches. So I was talking to the coaches on, on, on how they, they put together their, their routines and one of the coaches came over to me and said, so you're new. I, we know this is your first time with, with, with this company. So do, how are things going? And I'm like, I'm okay. I got about two and a half minutes of my, of my sequence done. So I'm, you know, I got about five more minutes to go. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. you got two and a half minutes straight. I said, yeah. He goes, no, no, no. He, he doesn't like to see that. What he wants is like 15 to 30 second increments. And what he'll do is he'll take, a piece of this and then a piece of that and then a piece of this and then he'll put it together and then he'll build a sequence. I'm like, I, I don't, I don't work that way. I, I, I have to tell a story. I have to have a, a follow through, you know, it, it has to have a high point, a low point, you know, I, I got to get from one place to another. And since this is fully automated, I can't just do a 15 second or a 30 second increment and then stop it and then start somewhere else. Because how am I going to get the equipment from one place to another without intersecting other lines? 
you know, as well, he, I just, I, I've done a few shows with him and I, I know he's not going to like it. I'm like, oh crap. So which, that was, that was, that was in the fact first be part. the reason why he didn't like it. Probably. Is yeah. some of these, these other people that he's worked with saying, well, this is, this is what we can do. This, you know, right. yeah, it, you can be a victim of your own success in that manner of if you, you have to find that balance between giving the client or in the situation, the director, what they want or what you think they want, what they've articulated that they want at that given moment, as well as your own artistic creativity to say, well, we can do more like your job, any designer, whether it's lighting set, fight choreography, flying choreography, part of that process is taking what the director says because they're, you know, rarely do they say exactly what they actually mean and interpreting what their vision is and saying, okay, this is what their overall vision is. How do I add to it? As you said earlier, not take away, but add to it and build on it. Um, and sometimes people get so focused with, well, as long as the director is happy, I'm happy. And that's all I'm going right. to put into it then you're always going to get the same result. Right. And this director, uh, I don't know if you know who Franco Dragon is, but he, he, he was the director of this production. Brilliant, brilliant individual. I mean, and he's done O in Vegas and the Celine Dion show and um, uh, La Reve. I mean, just gobs of shows. He used to work for or work with uh, Cirque du Soleil, and then he broke off and did his own company. Yeah. So he's uh, so the show yeah. in Dubai um, is the first permanent production, and um, it was it was just great watching him him work because I I did see how he worked with the other coaches where he took bits and pieces because it was like a, a gymnastic number or or uh, a dance number, and he was able to take a segment a segment of that choreography and pull it out and then put something else before it and after it, um, which makes sense. And like the way he works, the, our first technical rehearsal, he wanted every single element to be shown to him and how it works full in its fullest capacity. And then he says, okay, I like this and I don't like that. Can we do this and we could do that? And then if we take this, can we put it here? So basically he wants to see every tool in the toolbox he wants to know how every tool works, and then he figures out how to make make his show. It's almost like he's working like an editor. He's looking at the whole thing and all the pieces and saying, you know, this is okay, but if we moved this, you know, this piece over here, we're going to get more more oomph out of it. Mm -hmm. it's, it it's funny. Um, Sorry. No, no, it's totally fine. Um in pro wrestling, I so um, for the listeners, Paul and I have never met. This is the first time we're actually ever talking, which you all know I love because it gives me a chance to learn about somebody I knew. Um, so for Paul, he also doesn't know me. I spent quite a few years working in the pro wrestling industry. Um, and one of the things they talk about is psychology, that the two performers are trying to tell a story and there was psychology to it. And you started seeing what we term as a high spot and that changes over the years because what the 
and I use this term very specifically, the performers are athletes. And what those athletes are able to do within a ring keeps getting more and more impressive physically. Mm-hmm. And so it used to be, you know, if a guy jumped off the top rope, if Macho Man Randy Savage jumped off the top rope and landed an elbow, that was, you know, the most amazing thing you could see. Or people think about Jimmy Superfly Schnooka jumping off the top of the cage, which is, you know, about 10 feet tall from the mat, uh, doing a splash and like, oh, my, I, I can't believe he did that. Now you see guys are literally running across the top of a rope and jumping off of the ropes and doing flips. And so the term for that is called a high spot. It is something that gets the audience to stand up and be like, oh my, what did I just see? And what you see for young wrestlers is they get infatuated with, I got to do high spots. I got to create that moment over and over and over again. And the question is, how do you outdo yourself? So now that you've done, you know, 16 million flips off of the rope onto a guy, um, how and, and you didn't kill the other person, how do you do, <laughs> how do you do more than that? Right. And so you bring in this other term, which is the psychology. Did that move make sense now that you did this whole thing, but you guys decided that's not going to finish the match? Then, you know, a slap to the face finishes it. Well, does that make sense? Does that break the fourth wall? So going back to what you were saying earlier, creating realistic flying effects, things that make sense, that seem real. And in this process of creating a story and trying to have psychology to it, does each one of the movements of each performer make sense and fit and tell that story versus is it just spectacle? Is it just people? Is it Gaga for Gaga's sake is, is mm-hmm. what I'm going, ultimately getting to. That's right. an interesting aspect that I think that what people can take away from that is you have that. There's this perception that just because you have a big budget that you know what you're doing um, or that it's significantly different. And it's good to see that the artistic process can be the same, whether it's the small community theater or high school or, or Lort, regional Lort theater versus the, the mega shows. That that artistic process of you're still dealing with people and people can get caught up in Gaga and be like, well, we got to do this and this and this. But does it make sense? Maybe, right. maybe not. How did you get started in... I'll use the term the theater industry because a lot of your work is based in in performing arts theater, but I mm-hmm. certainly don't mean to, you know, shoot, you know, limit you to that that arena to say. But how did you get started in performing arts? Um, well, when I was younger, I I, I, I was an actor, um, which I think that's pretty much how most people start. And then uh, I went to college at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and I did a dual track. I was studying acting, and then I also wanted the tech because I, I was really impressed and amazed on on how the theatrics work backstage more so than they were on stage. And one of the shows I was working backstage for was a production of A Christmas Carol, and we flew an actor, and my job on that show was to make sure that that actor was hooked up and safe to fly. Um, 
and I thought it was I thought it was cool. Um, I I was not in charge of flying. I did I had nothing to do with with getting them off the ground. I did nothing with the choreography or the rigging. All my job was is to hook the person up and give the all clear to the stage manager, and that was it. And uh, about a year and a half, two years later, a friend of mine was a secretary for that flying company, Foy. And they were in the process of looking for a young college kid to fix equipment when it came back broken and clean up the shop. And I thought that was great. I could do that, you know, earn a, earn a buck that way. And when I met the owner, um, he was impressed with my theatrical background, the fact that I was an actor, the fact that I, I knew backstage and the fact that I was a magician. He said, you seem more, more, set to go out on and and do this choreography you know going out on the road would would you like to do that i'm like of course i would yeah so i started doing that and i i became his protege and uh, that's how i started it is it is interesting to hear how people get into uh to the industry and into rigging um well actually i to, to just to take a step back i think be, I, I i did you know uh community theater. But when I was eight or nine, my aunt gave me a, a magic kit for my birthday. And, you know, the magic kit, the Doug Henning with the linking rings and the top hat, with the rabbit that comes yeah. out the paper rabbit. And when I started to do tricks and, you know, fool my friends, I was like, oh, this is great. And it was that time where I realized I wanted to be a performer. I, I really enjoyed fooling people. And I think it was all about all about the illusion and I love yeah. the illusion. I love, I love being able to, you know, adjust somebody's reality, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that stayed with me. Uh, and then I became a magician. Um, I'm currently a, a member of the Academy of Magical Arts in, in California, the, the magic castle. And, I, I, uh, you know, I was going to bring this up and, and, hadn't decided if we'd do it off air or on air, but um, I do have quite a few friends who are magicians and uh, I don't think I've mentioned this story before, but uh, two years ago I was out in LA for training and had some time and, and called up a friend of mine who's a member and said, Hey, I know this is really short notice, but I'm flying out there in six days. You know, any, any chance you can hook me up with some tickets. And uh, he got us in and so we did the dinner. So for those of people, listeners who don't know what the hell we're talking about, <laughs> there is a um, a club, a, a, a I, I mean, I don't want to do disservice to it, but basically there is a, a place in L.A. called the Magic Castle, which is the the clubhouse for the magic world. And mm. once upon a time, it was members only. And their immediate guests. You can now, as a member, give out guest passes so that other people can go and enjoy uh, the evening. And there's a series of different sized performance spaces where you obviously go and see magicians perform. But there's also a restaurant um, where you can go and have dinner. So you can make an evening of it. There's obviously a bar and everything. And what's different between it and any other performance spaces, the idea really is that there are rooms where magicians can go to work out their 
their their act. There's uh, a very mindful thought of you can't take pictures in the building at all. And the idea is to create a place where celebrities and non-celebrities together can go and just have an enjoyable evening uh, without the paparazzi. And, you know, you can use the old saying, what happens at the Magic Castle stays at the Magic Castle. This particular night that I happen to go, we're having dinner and my buddy elbows me. He goes, I, I think that's Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson behind you. Now, of course, I can't turn around. I'm like, I'm not turning around. And it turns out, yeah, they they were sitting right there having dinner. This was maybe like two weeks before they got engaged. And uh, wow. we were like, hey, that's pretty cool. But there's, uh, it's just an awesome place to go. So if you know anyone who's a member and you're in LA, you can try to get guest tickets and go and, and see a show. And it's just an awesome experience. So it, it, it really is. Um, but you'll have to wait till COVID is over. because uh, Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think they're only doing takeout menu, takeout meals now. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it was really good food, too, by the way. It's not it, like it was really good food. The whole the whole evening was awesome. It, it is. And and some of the, the magicians actually create uh, things on the menu, too. Like Neil Patrick Harris created a, a drink. I think it's a, a Manhattan that's on the menu. And it's just incredible. It is a, a, an amazing drink. Um. But what's, what's funny is I've gotten to the point now, and I, I don't know if it's because of the Magic Castle, I was sitting at the airport uh, waiting for a flight and my phone rang and it came up, uh, ID, ID um, blocked or whatever it was. And I answered it and I said, this is Paul. And he goes, hey, Paul, it's Chris. I said, who? He said, it's Chris. Uh, I, my, I have a cousin, Chris. I'm like, oh, hey, how's it going? And he said, oh, just, just hanging in there. And I'm like, I'm sorry, Chris. It doesn't sound like you. He goes, no, Paul, it's me. It's Chris, Chris Angel. I'm like, oh, <laughs> sorry, Chris. I thought you were a different Chris. Uh, and then we started to talk. And, and it took me about 10 minutes to realize he hasn't even discussed what he wants to talk about yet. So I was like, so how, how, how can I help you? And he goes, Oh, I just wanted to pick your brain on a couple of things. I'm doing a new show and 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 want to see something about uh, about some some effects, you, how you can help me. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, and then we talked for about another 20 minutes, and I said, okay, well, I'll be in touch, and I'll let you know when I'm in Vegas. And I hung up, and I'm like, that was so surreal. Yeah. I, I, you know, especially when you're talking to someone and you're like, I'm, I'm sorry, it doesn't doesn't sound like you. No, oh, it was Chris Angel. And, uh, and then I get calls from, from other magicians like Shin Lim on, on ideas and concepts and help. And, and, and I'm, I'm able to be able to bring things to the table for them, which is, which is great. You know, and it's, it's, it's really great now also being part of the, the club. Um, even though I've been doing magic for years, uh, I've never been, I, I don't think I was ever going to be a professional magician, but I was, you know, uh, still able to fool you when I say pick a card and put it somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, I my intro, uh, my serious intro, because you know, obviously, as a kid, there was the you know the magic kit and kit and you know liking to to fool people. But um, when I was working at the lighting company, I we had a a client who was a magician. He did a lot of design work for Copperfield, as well as some others. 
Mm-hmm. And I got to know him pretty well. And then when I graduated college, didn't want to go to work in the shop, wanted to kind of see what is out there. So I freelanced for a while and I was about to move to Seattle, Washington. And I got a phone call for a project here in the New England area, which was a magic show called Kissed by Magic with Raku and Joni. Uh, trying to remember Joni's last name, but she had been an assistant for Copperfield for years. And she was really trying to break that glass ceiling of, as a female magician. And mm-hmm. so this magic show, which was being produced in a nightclub in Boston, was a a themed show. So it was a story of of a, a guy and a woman, obviously Rocco and Joni, uh, falling in love. And Rocco had won. This was 1999, 98 going into 99. Okay. At that time, Rocco was winning every sleight of hand competition there was. Um, when he was on, it was very impressive. And we would sit, our booth was elevated in the nightclub. So we were looking down. So we had the perfect vantage point to be able to spy stuff. And if he was on on a night, we couldn't tell. Like, you couldn't see anything. Uh, unfortunately, there are nights where he wasn't so on. And you're like, oh, that's how they do it. But... Um, that was a really interesting, uh, experience for me was learning, um, learning the process, working with their lighting designer to create these illusions and how do we do this? And again, that collaborative team effort to, to make one goal, which is a successful illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, after that, I met a bunch of people in the comedy slash magic world through again, doing lighting or different aspects of rigging for them. So it is, it, it's great. It's a great side of our business and, and a lot of fun. It, it um, is. I, I, I did a production of Carrie, the musical, uh, the Stephen King story yeah. to music. Um, we did it in LA and I had the pleasure of working with Jim Steinmeier, which was my first, my first show with him. Um, and I don't know if you know who Jim Steinmeier is, but he's the one who designed the illusion for David Copperfield to make the Statue of Liberty disappear. Yep. And he also worked with Doug Henning on on his Broadway show, The Magic Show. He he created the illusion for the Beast transformation for Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. Yeah. Um, and then he also designed the carpet flying, the the carpet flight for Aladdin for Disney's uh, the theatrical production on Broadway. So he's he's but he's also a magician. He's he's on the board of directors at the Magic Castle. Um, but I had the pleasure of working with him on this this production of Carrie because Carrie is supposed to be uh, telekinetic and, and be able to do these things. And, and the, being able to watch him rig this stuff in, in the show and have this actress look like she's doing magic and creating these these illusions. And these and the audience members are 10 feet away and and it's in the thrust. Yeah. So there's people all, all, except for being behind her. I mean, all around. And he had to work with the lighting and, and the set designer and everything just to make sure everything was perfect. And it just, it's it's like you said, it's amazing to watch these people work because you, you know what you do in your industry, but it's, it's amazing to watch people in another industry work to create their illusion. Um, and those are just really, really impressive. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny. People say, well, what does this have to do with rigging? I think the idea is that you can be inspired by other artists and the work that they do in terms of how they approach that challenge, how they're 
problem solving, being creative to create this performance. And, and you can be inspired by that. And one of the challenges I had when I was walking away, I chose to change directions from being a lighting person, going back to being the gearhead that I am in rigging was, was there art in rigging? Was there creativity? You know, and I've said before, when I would design an entrance for a pro wrestler and they would make that entrance and that audience of whether it was 500 or 5,000 people would get up and go crazy because of just this presentation and their favorite wrestler was coming in and all that energy and being able to be part of that process was awesome. And at the time I was like, yeah, no one walks into a concert, looks up and goes, wow, look at all that trust and motors. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, wow. That, that rigger yeah. did a great job designing that system. Mm-hmm. But well, over, t- I, over, over time, what I was going to get to was over time, I figured out there is art. There's art in the problem solving and creating the solution to different things. And then when you can add into, okay, we want to do something with a performer, whether it's a flying effect or a simple scenic move or whatever it is, those are the great opportunities where you say, hey, we can create this art together. Yes, and that's true. And I was going to bring up an example again with that production of Carrie. There was one sequence during the uh, the destruction where Carrie is making all of the, the doors close and the windows break and collapse the whole gymnasium. There was one part where uh, a rope was supposed to wrap around this guy's neck and then lift him up and hang him. So I'm sitting there trying to figure out the best way to do this, and I came up with this this so it, so discombobulated. It was so it, it was a nightmare. Um, because I, I knew that I had to have, uh, a cable obviously go through a rope that attached to his harness. So the cable was masked with the rope. Great. But how do I get the rope to wrap around his neck in a, in a way that it looks like it's taking tension, but it can break away. So I'm sitting there playing with all these ideas. And then Jim comes over, he goes, well, why don't you just do this? And basically all it was, was a person hiding behind a place, uh, a, a set piece with a piece of thread pulling it to bring that the rope around his neck. I'm like, cause that's too simple. He goes, so why not? Yeah. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm scratching my head trying to make this so technical. I mean, and so, so just, and all it is is just a person behind a set piece with a piece of thread pulling it to wrap around his neck. Obviously it's a little bit more technical than that because you have to get the thing to wrap around his neck and make sure that it, if, if, if anything happened and the, and the cable came off of the harness that he wasn't really going to get hanged. Um, but it was, it was foolproof. It was, and it worked a hundred percent of the time, it's but it the, takes someone, it takes someone like that to look, to come from the outside to say, yeah. Oh, you're, you're looking at this, the difficult way. Just, just think simple. Over and that in, was it. Over analysis leads to paralysis is a term that I, I love saying, which is, you know, you, you start thinking about it too much and yeah. then all of a sudden you're not doing anything. And then uh, we all know the KISS method, which is keep it simple, stupid. 
Yeah, um, exactly. Yep. And, and it happens to all of us. I mean, I've I've had these things where I and I mentioned before you the blinders get on and you're going so far down this path. You're like, I need to make this work and it's not working. I'm getting flustered, blah, blah. And sometimes maybe the best thing to do is step away, walk away and go back to it sometime period late, later and be like, all right, what if I try something completely different? Just what if? And it, I've mentioned this before. There's the uh, think wrong process, which is, uh, and it typically works a lot better with a group of people on a project than an individual, but start throwing out the wrong ideas that you know are just so absurd. Um, I mentioned it before. We talked about the Event Safety Alliance one year. We were doing this process to think about how do we continue to improve this is some safety summit. And the thought process was, okay, let's do a think wrong process. I was like, all right, we want to engage people more. So that means we don't want them getting up from the seats. We're going to charge them $5 if they want to use the bathroom. That will keep <laughs> people in their seats. Would you ever do that? No. But no. that internal thought process of, hey, we're going to charge for this made people say, why would you do that? Well, what we're ultimately trying to get to is how do we keep people engaged? So right. all of those different tricks, and they sound so stupid. You're like, oh, that's that's for, you know idiots. We're not going to do that. But it's all about shifting your paradigm and shifting your thought process to look at the problem in a manner which you are maybe unable to at the current time. And that can lead to beautiful uh, progress. You know, everything all of a sudden starts to click or like I've mentioned before, not being so intimidated by other people's input that it's not them criticizing you, but offering maybe something that you are unable to see because you're so tied up into it that they offer something you go, wow, that that was brilliant. I wish I had seen it, but I wasn't. And again, if you're all focused on the end result, which is the best presentation to the audience, then there should be no reason for you not to look at every option available to you. Exactly. And this, this goes back to what you had asked earlier. Uh, at the very beginning of the conversation of what, what do I look for in, in a rigor, someone who's going to collaborate, someone who can come up with ideas, you know, someone who's going to be able to suggest something when I'm sitting there scratching my head going, how do I do this? They can say, Oh, just, why don't you just do that? And it makes total sense. That's, I, I, I look for someone who's going to collaborate, you know? Yeah. And, and, and that's what you need because there are times where you're going to be stuck in a corner and you, and you, you have all the pieces to the puzzle, but you just can't make it fit, you know, and then they're going to come over and go, just turn this piece this way. And then it fits. So, so that's, that's, that's exactly what's great about this industry is that there's always somebody there that could be on the outside looking in saying, you know, look at it this way, you know, you're, you're you take, take the blinders off. Yeah. So to speak. Absolutely. Um, we talked a little about um, some hardware, some different things. One of the questions I asked a lot of my guests is, is there a particular widget, a tool, a device, something that's uh, catching your fancy recently? And I know that's a, a difficult question because we're approaching, you know, nine months of not being out there working and not having people develop new cool things. But, is there anything out there recently and, and whether or not you want to talk about specific product names or not, doesn't matter to me, but anything out there that's been really kind of cool or like, Hey, this is a cool device and solves a lot of problems or 
any other, you know, things like that? Well, well, I, yeah, actually there is. I, and I, and I've used it a couple of times, but never to the extent that I want to use. Um, and I, I mentioned it earlier was the halo harness, the harness that you, that you can actually rotate within pink uses it on her tour. Okay. Um, and, I, and I've used it in two different shows already, but never I, I've never had the ability to do it to the extent that I want. Um, and I've I've played in the harness because uh, it gives you so much freedom, so much um, so much capability. But the hard thing is is masking it because you have this ring around your hips. Um, you have to build a specific costume that that you can mask it. And I have ne- I have not been able to. Um, use it in a show yet where I can mask it, where you don't know that the person is wearing this harness. Um, That that's, that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm working on right now where I I can have something either uh, already in the works for when the time comes. And I can say, Oh, I already solved that problem. But that's, that's the thing that right now, uh, are you, you're familiar with the harness I'm referring to? Uh, It tangentially to say, I, I know of it. I've uh, I've seen it in demo, you know, trade show demo uh, environments, but I've I've never done a performance with it. Yeah, it, it, some people call it a halo harness. Some people call it a three hundred and sixty harness. Um, but it, it it gives you uh, the ability to put a, either two wires. You could do it either two wires or three D, or you can even do four D on it. Um, and while it's rigid, you can still rotate within it. So you can rotate and somersault, even though the wires stay at a static position. Yeah. And it's 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 brilliant. But mm-hmm. the thing is, is it's bulky and it's it's not the most comfortable. I'll I'll tell you that. Um, when when it's on and it's in position, it it's still you know there there is somewhat there's it is uncomfortable. However, the effects that you can get out of it outweigh the 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 uh, the annoyance of the pressure points that you have in certain places let's put it that way do you think and that brings up an interesting topic um how often are you brought into the process before the person is cast who's doing the flying effect versus after because one of the things certainly to consider is the ability of the performer to do these tasks and the more complicated we're getting like in a 3d harness where we want them to be able to do a, a somersault repeatedly that does take some physical effort from the performer i'm not doing that right um mm-hmm. are you ever afforded that opportunity to kind of work with the director saying hey if we want to do these things we need to think about the right performer to do that and having that ability I would assume more often than not, it is not the case. And you're really just here's who we cast as Peter Pan or here's who's been cast as X, Y, Z. And you, you have to work with that performer to make it work. Um, well, it, believe it or not, it varies. And, and I, I'm going to say 75 to 80% of the time I'm not involved, but the 20% of the time that I am involved, it is for the shows where the flying is very intricate. Um, and the performers need to be uh, a, a specific, a specific skills have a specific skill set. Um, 
I, I have actually gone to and held specific auditions for people uh, for the shows and, and had fly rigs in there, put them in, in the rig and had them do certain things to see how quickly they can uh, adapt and adjust within a certain aspect. Because you know that there, everybody can put anything on on a resume, you know, and I've and I've experienced it, and I've actually seen people put a, a show that I've worked on on their resume, and I've seen them audition for something else, and ask uh, what they did for that show, and they, and all they can say was, no, no, I I just auditioned for it. Yeah. So they they so and I knew that they weren't in the show because it was a show that I choreographed. Um. So the fact that we were able to to get a fly rig in a in a rehearsal studio and and put them in a harness, we could find out what their skill level was, even though they did or did not have it on their resume. Um, yeah. And it helps. And there are times where I'm not able to go to the auditions, but I I have the director ask specific questions to these performers to see uh, what they can and can't do. You know if. If they're a gymnast, what kind of gymnastics do they do? Uh, you know, sometimes uh, swimming helps. If you're a swimmer, uh, I, I did a production of uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, the musical at Universal Studios. And when we started casting for it, uh, the one thing that I asked for was to have people who can swim because we needed to do a synchronized underwater swimming sequence. And the creature has to be able to look like he's a professional swimmer because he's this, you know, the creature. Right. Um, and we found someone uh, who had some swimming experience, but was able to expand on it. And he did a brilliant job with it. You know, and you, you couldn't tell that he, you couldn't, when you watch the show, you couldn't believe that he wasn't in water. That's how great it was. That's awesome. When you, when you succeed at, at creating that environment where it's so close to reality. You're like, oh, it looks so good. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, I also did a production of uh, Disney's Little Mermaid. Um, we didn't do the, the Broadway production, but we did a, an American tour, but it started in um, Holland. And we had three automated, I'm sorry, four automated uh, track systems. And there were all four tracks. Each track was had three point. Uh, sorry. There were three automated, uh, my brain is farting right now. Um, we were able to lift, travel, and rotate individually. And it was a two-wire track. So we were able to have these mermaids swim across the stage, rotate, face the opposite direction, and then swim across again right. while hovering. Um, and we had four of these tracks we had over 1500 cues in the, in the show. Jeez. It was, it was crazy. We had, uh, I want to say five, I had about five weeks to program and rehearse before we actually saw an audience. And it was, I would rehearse with the director during the day. And then at night I would spend about four to five hours programming. Not what I rehearsed with the, with the director, but to get a head start of what he wanted to rehearse the next day. So I would program what he wanted to rehearse the next day, work of that, and then tweak during the downtimes that I had during that rehearsal, and then spend the next five to six hours that night working on what we're going to work the next day. Next day. 
Um, and, and the thought in the back of my head is if, if you've done a lot of theater work and you've flown ceiling scenery that tracks on stage and upstage and goes up and down, you know, that in tech there's a lot of tight quarters to say, you know, sometimes you get some rubbing of scenic elements until you figure out, okay, we got to do these things in this order. Um, it's probably not a great thing to smack your performers together while you're trying to figure out these movements, especially when you start getting some velocity involved where, uh, you know, people's arms are out and everything. So that back to what you were saying, that heightened idea of safety and thinking through the process becomes more critical because now yes. it's just not just two flats hitting each other going boom. And everyone goes, okay, let's stop and figure this out. It's, you know, fingers and eyes. Exactly. Which is why I will always fly a sandbag what we call it a body bag. It's those huge 200 pound sandbags. I'll fly that first and then I will get into the harness and I will fly the sequence before I get an actor. And then I will fly it in front of the actor to show the actor that it's safe. And then I will start working with the actor. I will never have an actor do something that I can't or won't do. Now, physically, I, I'm not uh, a gymnast or or an aerialist, so I can't physically do what they do. However, I can be in that space the and space, run the right. sequence. Um, but I, I, I will never ask an actor to do something that I won't do. Like, like flight, fly 160 feet in the air. I have to do it first because yeah. I want to know what they're going to experience because when they start to freak out or if they have any questions, I can say, well, I've done it and this is how I did it. This is how I put my weight into the wire. This is how I hooked myself up, or this is how I double checked to make sure I was hooked up, um, and things like that. So I I can take them through the whole the whole step process. I think that's a a very it again my brain stopped working when I was trying to say that's a very good thing. No, I think that's a a commendable thing and a a a great mindset, which is I'm never going to put someone in an environment I wouldn't be in in myself. Um, and that it's not just, you can relate that to everything. I wouldn't stand under a trust that I wouldn't ask someone else or, or wouldn't ask other people to stand under a trust. I wouldn't stand under myself. Right. Um, exactly. It's you know, and, and that's, and, and that's the one thing that I try and do to, to, to explain to not only, you know, the actors, but the directors and the producers and the other choreographers, um, what the sequence is going to look like and how the process is going to go. And it, it always works well when you get the, the company together and I put on the harness and I'm showing them how safe it is and what it's going to look like and what to expect. Um, and I will always talk them through how the harness goes on, how they connect, and there's always going to be a, a person hooking you up and then the person watching that person hook you up. And then you're going to be the third set of eyes on that. So someone's going to hook you up somebody like a stage manager will watch that person hook you up and then get the okay. And then you're going to double check it and make sure that it's okay. So there's three people going through this process to make sure that you're safe and getting hooked up. And if at any point you feel uncomfortable, you tell the stage manager or, or whoever's sitting next to you that you're not going to fly. And we always have a, a no flies um, sign or a clear sign. And we know that we're going to, we're good to go. You know, yeah. and we when we talk through that whole process too during that time that we're we're introducing the flight element. It it brings up a, a question that 
quite often when I have guests on who do performer flying, the topic we'll bring up, which is specific to hardware, but um, do you have an opinion about not purpose-made hardware? And what I mean specifically is, I'm not going to skirt around the issue, do you have an opinion about people using sports climbing gear like carabiners for performer flying? Now, obviously, one of the areas that you're very focused on is hiding the illusion and um, the ability to do that with larger budgets where you have custom-made hardware for the purpose. But a lot of people, the simple flying rigs are, hey, get a rope and a carabiner. Um, And that seems to be this interesting topic to debate about whether or not it's appropriate to use that hardware or not. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Well, if you used anything as an example, other than a shot, I mean, a carabiner, I would say no, because if you go to Home Depot or Lowe's and and get some pulleys, you're not going to get the pulleys that you need. You're not going to get the correct pulleys. Um, You're not going to get a pulley where the cable won't jump the shiv and sit between the shiv and the housing. And you can't fix that. The flying vendors like Foy and ZFX, they have specially milled housings for shivs, uh, for pulley housings, where the cable will not jump and it prevents that from happening. That's one of the one of the biggest problems that people have when they make their makeshift fly rigs from, from Home Depot is that you're using something that wasn't intended for this purpose. So no, I, a, a carabiner, yes. Carabiners are designed to be used for rock climbing, but can carry over into our industry because of the way it's designed and the way we use it. The pulleys that you buy from from a hardware store are not designed to be used in the applications that we use. So the answer is no with an exception. <laughs> it, it, uh, the, ter- the term that a, a bunch of us trainers have been using is it depends. Yeah. Um, but so I guess it, no, no, with an exception means depends. Yeah, yeah, but uh, it, it it is an interesting topic. The um, a discussion came up recently again online about uh, this particular application was someone was hanging a few lights off of an I beam, and it, the discussion about different styles of beam clamps came up, and an interesting discussion was, well, that's only designed for static loads. And I, I, I didn't do it, but I really wanted to respond. Well, what do you mean? Like, mm-hmm. how do you know that it was designed for a static load? And do you actually understand the design process of a widget? <laughs> um, now, there are certainly applications where the design factor on a piece of hardware is really low. So their ability to deal with dynamic loads is different. But. Riggers like to use these kind of black and white things, and it's not so much that case. And there's a lot of it depends and working with your engineer can kind of change things that you maybe normally wouldn't do. So it is that that shiv thing is not something I think people would necessarily think about because they get hyper focused on that, the carabiner, the connection style or the wire rope size. But 
I don't think people without experience would think about the fact that you may have more opportunities in performer flying where that lift line goes a little slack and the opportunity for jump shivs is greater. Mm-hmm. So now if that happens, you talk about a very, you know, instantaneous dynamic load because the wire rope just stops and all the other issues of jump shivs where, you know, you can cause failure in wire, wire rope quickly. Right. Um, Cause now, now when you, to, to lower that person, that cable is rubbing against the shaft and not where it's supposed to be. So now you're sawing through something instead of gliding them down. So now, and, now it's, yep. it's even more dangerous. And you flatten out the wire rope. So now you're not getting equal load distribution on the wires within the wire rope. Yeah. Bad, bad right. things happen after that. Right. And, and now, and now when you, when you take the load off of the cable, now the cable is all pigtailed, you know, and who's to say what strands are broken and what aren't, you know? So it's, it's yes. So it depends, but no. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Exactly. What, right. Conversely, what area within, and you can make it specific to performer flying or just uh, kind of rigging in a broad sense. What area do you think needs the greatest uh, improvement? And I'm going to take one topic off the table training. Because I think we all agree that you can always do more training. So with the exception of training, what area needs the greatest improvement? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I guess I would have to say, I, I would. Uh, the first thing I would say would be to have equipment that's more versatile. So it, it's easily adaptable. Um, but then if it's easily adaptable, then it's not going to be safe in certain applications because people might not look at it in a different area. I, you know, this is a really good question. Um, hmm. It's okay. I mean, that, that answer is, is certainly acceptable in terms of the fact of, Hey, you know, I wish there was this magic widget that does it all, but we might not be able to get there because does it open up too much potential for misuse because people think it can do everything. Uh, like I, uh, we go back to the carabiner thing, which is depending on the design, but carabiners, you know, aren't particularly great at having uh, more than two objects in them. You start triaxially loading carabiners. They don't respond the way you want them to respond. Yet we all wish they would, you know, and then right. you get pear shaped carabiners and you say, well, it's pear shaped. So it's designed to hold more stuff. Well, is it? Um, It's that that aspect of give people to uh give I, i'm going to change how i'm going to say this um sometimes objects can create an environment where stupid can creep in where it's not supposed to <laughs> <laughs> yes I, oh, I know that yes um i i, I th- there okay I, i'm gonna i'm gonna change i'm gonna do a side, uh, uh, an off-road part of this. When I was on tour with Peter Pan, I had a um, air quote erector set of of equipment to use for to rig the audience flight because we never did a uh, a site survey or um, to see what what how the theaters were. So we showed up at six a.m. on a Monday morning. We loaded the stuff in on stage, and then I had to go front of house and rig this audience flight, which is basically a simple pendulum. But how do you get that 
pen, that, that point above the audience that's going to fly Peter Pan out over the audience. Um, some places were great. They had a, a phantom chandelier and then we can just take a span set uh, and wrap around the, the, the shaft and fly right off of that. But some theaters weren't. Some theaters couldn't do it. Um, so I had this audience flight kit that had Unistrut and um, uh, all all kinds of crap. We had uh, not sky hooks, but they were they were like um, UFOs uh, is what they call mm-hmm. what I think Petzl calls them, and every single different kind of contraption in this toolbox to rig. And it was those points where like, if this piece can only do this, or if, if we can only have this turn this way instead of this way. Um, so I, I have a bunch of drawings of, of pieces that if we only built a certain way or, or modified would be perfect. But, you know, design factor maybe wouldn't work. And I, I've never brought them to fruition because it's only a, a, a dream or, you know, something right. that I wish wish was there. And and that goes back to, you know, you know, what can be expanded upon is is having stuff that's a little bit more versatile, but then you have to take into consideration the, the stupid factor. Yeah. Um you, 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 you can't stop stupid. You can only slow it down. You can only slow it down. And there were a lot of times where we slowed down stupid. Yeah. Um I'll ask a question that maybe should be a lot easier. Uh, what's on your your uh, performer or your your uh, aerial choreographer slash rigger bucket list? Oh, that's a good question. Um, uh, and I, I've actually been working through this to see the physicalities of doing it, but I, I want to do an aerial adagio number with two to three 3d flights. So three different couples doing the same thing um, on a 3d rig, but the complications of making sure that the wires don't cross are, are, you know, high. Uh, If I can only do two, then I would, I would cut it down to two, but I would, I would love to do something like that where i was gonna say how much does 3d visual visualization help in your choreography because what i'm thinking about in my head is you know let's say you had three individual performers that are all on four lift lines from the four corners of a box right you're in this cube room you with enough pre-programming this is where automation comes in you can have people vertically go in and out from between lift lines as long as you're tracking where all those people are clearly you can't just go horizontally in every axis because eventually people would run into the to the wire rope but do you use visualization software to help figure out hey i can have this person go down here and this person up here and in in track all of that movement of those lift lines to figure out how to to do some of this stuff or is yes, this all yes. in your head uh it well it starts out in my head and i and i visualize the basic areas where they can go 
and then we put it into a, a, a program. And then if two lines intersect, the lines turn red. So we know that we can't, we can't get that close to each other. So we just back it off a little bit. Right. But, but basically, I, I can see the areas. I, I know where they can and can't go. I just don't know how close they can. You know, is it a 17-foot travel or is it a 13-foot travel before they hit the wire? But yeah. I, I know I know their parameters. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I did a, a production. Uh, it was a Christmas production for the Mormon Tabernacle Choir uh, in Utah, and I flew two characters. I flew John Reese Davis as the ghost of Christmas future, and Charles Dickens. And Charles Dickens was on a three D flight, and the ghost was on a a two wire track system. And the two of them. Um, intersected, they worked together, and then one would fly around, and then he would come back to to the ghost, and then the ghost and Charles Dickens would talk, and then Dickens would then fly around again. He would fly over the audience, he would dip down into the aisle, he would land in the aisle, then he would fly back up, and all of this, the entire flight happened over the audience, and they, I think, they seat around twenty thousand people. 20, it's a big thing. Twenty thousand. It's huge. Um, and I had to visualize where this 3D flight can happen, how far can I get it to go, and then be close enough to the ghost where they can interact and hold hands so they can fly together um, in this straight line. So like the ghost can only fly you know, upstage to downstage. So I need to get uh, Charles Dickens to fly upstage to downstage alongside the ghost and then be able to fly out over this vast theater and then come back to the ghost and then fly back together to the stage. So I was able to visualize, you know, a good part of that. And then the software was able to tell me, no, I can't get that far here. Or I can't go this far downstage before, before the wires hit. Yeah. It's basically, it's doing the error checking for you, the, the redundancy or second set of eyes. That's pretty, yeah, exactly. that's really cool. Exactly. I don't, th- I, I think when people, depending on their skill level, think about performer flying. It's very much the, you know, rope harness person off stage pulling on the rope type thing. And, and, you know, the fairly simple systems, but you start looking at these more complicated systems. There are a lot of factors to, to think about. Yeah, there is. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of things to take into consideration. I mean, um, and like I said from early on, is is I, I look at the final picture first. So this way we can figure out exactly what we're going to need. But I mean, if you if you just look at the equipment, saying okay, we need rope, a couple of pulleys, a harness, and cable, then you're really limiting yourself because you're you're not going to be able to do exactly what you want to do with it. Um, but then I I know that there are those high schools that really want to do flying, and but it's not within their budget. Um, and they say, well, you know, I, I, I've seen these rigs and all they are are pulleys and ropes and, and, and we can get this rock climbing harness. Mm-hmm. It, the rock climbing harness is not designed to be picked up that way, you know. And then if you wanted, to, oh, well, let's, let's use the safety harness that they use for, you know, for uh, the, the guys that climb up the, the scaffolding. And, and, but because there's a pick point and there's a dorsal pick. I'm like, yeah, but it's not designed to keep you in the air. It's designed to make sure that you don't fall. It goes flat. Yeah, exactly. 
but 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 if it works why can't we do why can't we just do that because that's not what it's designed for you know and there's there's a big thing around all of the hardware that we use whether it's performer flying or just lifting which is fatigue factor how mm-hmm. and repetitive use is is the big thing um one thing to consider with non hardware not designed for lifting purposes is whether or not when they were designed were they designed for a single time use is that connector designed to stop you from going splat once um or is it designed f- designed for repetitive use where it's going to be loaded and unloaded and loaded and unloaded repeatedly and how many times how many cycles can you do before it starts to uh break down more so there's all these these factors get involved which is why um again the the stock answer usually is hire a professional hire someone who has the experience that knows these things so that and 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 we've mentioned before a lot of the, the the performer flying companies do a really good job of they'll provide hardware they'll provide training they'll help you choreograph it and they will teach you and your staff how to do the flight so that you're not paying someone to do every single one they they for the most part they all want to work with you to figure out how do we do this within your budget but do it properly exactly and that's how i met brian brian reed uh i was doing a show where i was teaching these fathers how to fly for a a children's theater company and that's i was there for i think it was a three-day or a four-day package where i loaded the equipment in you know and to, to keep the price down uh i didn't stay i i loaded it in and over the next three days i choreographed the sequence so i taught the actors how to, to fly and then i would teach the the dads how to fly their kids and i always <laughs> i always suggest that you if if especially if he's you know if he's physically fit ask the dads to fly the kids their own kid because if something happens and the kid falls it's the dad's fault right so the mom the mom can't blame anybody but the dad yep um and they say oh that's a great idea that's a great idea because they're going to be so uh, conscientious of their safety that they're going to make sure that they don't get hurt um but then i always found out that once they got comfortable they like to fool around and they would tug on the heart the, the rope and the kid would jerk up a little bit you know they would get his attention or yeah. when they're lying in bed they, they pull the rope a little bit and you see the blankets go up with the kid rising a little bit and you, you gotta you gotta make sure that they don't get too comfortable yeah um, but but yeah they flying companies will work with you on your budget um because i mean they want you to be able to do it uh safely and and everybody has the safety in mind because you do, nobody wants anybody to get hurt. Um, and I get calls all the time, Paul. We really want to do this. Um, we can't hire anybody. Uh, do you have any suggestions on what equipment we can get at the store, or where where can we buy the stuff that that we need? May, we know we can't get it at Home Depot, but tell us the vendor that you can get these pulleys from. I'm like, I, I can tell you that. However. Now I'm setting myself up because I'm telling you how to do something. If you do it incorrectly, you know, I'm liable. So I really can't, I can't do that. Um, yeah, it, I, I would love to help you, but you're, what, what's going to happen is you're going to save money getting the equipment, but you're going to be spending millions of dollars 
in uh, in hospital bills because you you hurt somebody. So my my suggestion to you is just hire a professional, have a professional do it. And one of the challenges as a uh, as someone who does trainings as and and some of my early memories of attending trainings with uh, Jay and Harry um, were people will ask a very specific question and as a trainer, I don't ever want to not answer a question, but there are times you're like, well, this is a very specific answer that applies to this very specific situation, but experience knowledge comes into it in terms of doing your risk assessment of that particular application. And what are all the different things that an expert or a skilled person might be able to consider that a a a non-skilled person isn't going to see. If all they see is the pulleys and the rope, they're missing a whole lot of information about the rest of it to make sure it's done safely. And I can mm-hmm. tell you as an, a business owner that uh, professional liability insurance, which is basically what people uh term errors or and omissions is not inexpensive. It's more expensive than my general liability policy. Um, and that's all for a situation where someone does something and they say, but Ethan said I could do it. Ethan said <laughs> I could hang a thousand pounds off of monofilament. Right. <laughs> well, I said you could do it if you were in space. There was right. no gravity. Like there's always more Just- to, to the situation. Right. And just because you can go to the store and buy this stuff doesn't mean you should. Correct. Yeah. So, And some people just don't realize that. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've covered a, a, a good amount of topics and some great information. I do have one more question, which for everyone listening, he doesn't know this is coming. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, pressure on. This is the hardest question. This has this has stumped quite a few people. Uh, what is your best and or worst rigor joke? And you can interpret rigor op- wider. Like if you have performer flying jokes, feel free. Oh man. Well, it's it's going to be one of those stupid dad jokes. Um, it, that's not a problem because uh, quite a few of the guests have done that. So go for it. The precedence well, is there. Why does Peter Pan? Why is Peter Pan always flying? Because he never lands. That's see, that's actually good. You know why? Because no one has gotten no. anywhere close to telling that one yet. what we've discovered is there's actually only like two or three rigor jokes and you just put spins on them. Um, Uh And the joke within that itself is there's only one rigor joke. The rest of them are true stories. Um, Oh, that's true. Yeah. So no, that's a good one. That works. Oh, well, I pat that's the hardest one and I'm good. Okay. Thank you. No, absolutely. (laughs) Well, Paul, thank you very much for spending time talking about, um, what you bring to our industry and, and your story. I think it's very, um, it's eye opening to me to see a different side that, you know, 
I freely admit, I'm very focused on the nuts and bolts side of rigging for our industry. And I do do some aerial performance stuff, but certainly not to the depths that you or any of the flying companies do. Um, so getting to see what the other people are doing and the work and the creativity involved in that is very eye-opening and, and really makes you appreciate these performances even more because now you're understanding more of the work that goes into creating them. So thank you for spending time uh, talking with me today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for asking. I, I had a great time. Excellent. And for everyone listening, thank you very much for uh, for doing so. I know we had a, a couple of down weeks, you know, between Thanksgiving and other things happening, but trying to get some more content pushed out there for everyone. So again, thank you for listening. And until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger.